This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Perhaps it's your first time. We hope not, but perhaps it is. But then perhaps you tuned in for the first time last week and heard our excerpting from Jane Mayer's wonderful book, Dark Money, also from Professor Tim Wu's excellent effort, The Curse of Bigness, Antitrust in the New Gilded Age. If you missed them, you can find <laughs> both in our archives at radioparallax.com. We've never meant for Radio Parallax to be a show just about what's, you know, in the headlines. But the fact of the matter is, it often pretty much is. And it occurs to me that we owe a great debt here at Radio Parallax to somebody who blazed a trail in doing that same thing. In this case, it was reading the newspaper and turning it into an interesting and entertaining monologue. A man this show owes a great debt to, though it never really occurred to me until a couple weeks ago that we do, is none other than Mort Stahl. Mort Stahl is still alive and doing well at age 92 and still performing on a weekly basis. Some years back, we had a chance to speak with author Gerald Nachman about his wonderful book, Seriously Funny, The Rebel Comedians of the 1950s and 1960s. That's something else we would refer you to our archives for. That was, that was a good one. Uh, let me just quote from Nachman's introduction to that book. Referring to that aforementioned era, Nachman said, Much of the humor is as funny, fresh, and unforgettable today as the hour it was first conceived in those allegedly soporific 1950s. The decade left an indelible mark, not the least of which was caused by a revolution of laughter, a muffled explosion that occurred one night in late December 1953 in a small downstairs room in San Francisco called The Hungry Eye. There, a swarthy 27-year-old Berkeley would-be graduate student wearing a pullover sweater and slacks, Mort Saul, whose script was the daily newspaper, dared to say what was on his mind. Everything, as it turned out. Saul was the acknowledged rebel leader, the mouth that roared. Saul's entire act, demeanor, language, look, and wardrobe warred against almost everything that had come before. Pre-Saul was a time in which comedians clad like band leaders in spats and tuxes, sporting cap and bell names like Joey, Jackie, or Jerry, announced themselves by their brash, anything-for-a-laugh, charred-earth policy, and by-the-joke-book gags. Catskill refugees, they were tumblers and spritzers, incubated in resorts, supper clubs, and casinos mainly members of the comic Jewish Mafia, whose capos included Milton Berle, Henny Youngman, Myron Cohen, Jack Carter, Alan King, Jack E. Leonard, Joe E. Lewis, and Joey Adams, with the occasional non-Jewish ethnic outsider, Danny Thomas, Pat Cooper, Nipsey Russell. It was an exclusive society. Saul challenged and changed all that simply by the unheard-of comic device of being himself and speaking his mind on stage. Everything followed from him. I look forward to talking about our little visit with Mort in the second segment today. But let's back up and start with a quote of the day, as we so often like to do in this program. In this case, diplomat and author Danielle Varé was quoted as saying, Diplomacy is the art of letting someone else have your way. 
And we're going to make a concerted effort on today's program to avoid mentioning Donald J. Trump. Someone who kept actual count counted up 3,300 lies in one year coming from the president, which is about nine a day, every day. As of a week or so ago, six of the current cabinet-level jobs are filled by acting officers who have not been confirmed by the Senate. Attorney General, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of the Interior, Director of the EPA, United Nations Ambassador, and White House Chief of Staff. The Atlantic noted that Trump says he prefers acting cabinet members because he can move so quickly if he's not happy with them. It is perhaps worth mentioning, as was mentioned on Vox.com, that Andrew McCabe, the former FBI acting director who's currently got a book out, Explain in the book why he initiated an FBI investigation of Trump for obstruction of justice after the president fired FBI director James Comey. The newly elected president's attempts to shut down the fledgling Russian investigation were so blatant, McCabe said, that top officials feared Trump might be compromised by Russia and pose a national security threat to the U.S. So deep was that concern, McCabe admits, that he, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, and other top Justice Department officials even discussed whether they could recruit Vice President Mike Pence and eight cabinet officials to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove Trump from office on the grounds that he was unfit. Let's talk about something else. Anything else. If all goes well, yours truly will be skiing at the time this is being broadcast. I hope it happens. I have not been up on the white stuff all year long, and it's apparently a good year this year. But I was pretty horrified to read this story. Avalanche dogs on Tuesday morning found a missing seaside skier dead under massive amounts of snow powder less than 100 feet from a groomed run at Heavenly Mountain Resort. Brett Herrick went missing at about 11.30 a.m. near the Comet Run off Stagecoach Lodge. His girlfriend was the last one to see him. Crews using the dogs found Herrick around 10 a.m. Tuesday in the Aries Wood. He was in a wooded off-trail area that was perfectly legal for him to ski. Deputy Sheriff said what we believe happened is that he was off the trail skiing in some very deep powder and his ski tips crossed and he went over face first and couldn't get out. It's called snow immersion and you drown. It can happen when you're in powder that's as deep as the powder we have. The report notes that rescue crew workers were sinking to their hips as they tried to extricate Herrick from the snow. I've done a fair amount of off-trail skiing in the woods myself, and this just makes me a little nervous. Last week, the atmospheric river that rolled through California dumped 108 inches of snow at Heavenly. There's risks in everything we do, including things like skiing, but, you know, I, I do have to feel for this guy. And in other skiing news, <laughs> a seldom-used segue on this program, we have this. Gwyneth Paltrow, the actress, is countersuing a skier who obviously was suing her in the first place. The story is that the actress is filing a countersuit against a skier claiming that Paltrow crashed into him at a Utah ski resort two years ago, causing him physical and mental injuries. Paltrow's countersuit is asking the Utah man, Terry Sanderson, for $1 in damages. Sanderson, on the other hand, is looking for $3 million in the way of a payday from the actress and spokeswoman. Sanders, on the other hand, is looking for a $3 million payday from the actress. According to the article in the Bay Area News Group, Paltrow disputes Sanderson's claim that she broke slope protocol by not giving way to a skier who was downhill at the Deer 
Valley Resort in February 2016. Sanderson argues that she ran into him from behind, causing both skiers to spill onto the snow. Sanderson asserted that Paltrow then got back up on her skis and continued down the mountain while he was still on the ground. According to his court filing, Gwyneth Paltrow knew it was wrong to slam into Dr. Sanderson's back, doctor, knocking him down, landing on top of him, knocking him out, then leaving the scene of the ski crash she caused. But she did it anyway. Paltrow claims in her countersuit that it was Sanderson who ran into her from behind, and the ski resort's incident report backs that claim. The report Paltrow says, quote, Sanderson is saying that she appeared right in front of him and that Sanderson took her out from behind. Additionally, Paltrow said that Sanderson and his friend told the ski patrol they were fine after the condition. However, in his lawsuit, Sanderson said that in addition to his physical and mental injuries, he also suffered loss of enjoyment of life, comma, emotional distress, comma, disfigurement, comma, and medical expenses. A spokesperson for Paltrow had previously said, this lawsuit is completely without merit. Anyone who reads the facts will realize that. Now, I have to admit, when I've been up on the slopes, there have been occasional mishaps with other skiers. Rarely, but on occasion. And I have to admit, I'm, I'm having a little trouble with emotional distress, disfigurement, and loss of enjoyment of life. I don't think this guy's going to get the $3 million. And from time to time in this program, we like to pull things out of left field. In fact, we like to do it every time. So I don't know that this will be the screwiest thing on this particular program, but let me quote from it. It's a piece from New Scientist magazine. The magazine shows a picture of a woman relaxing in a hammock near a mountain lake. The text says, Adults may snooze better and remember more of what they have learned if they are rocked to sleep. These findings from a small study suggest rocking beds might help people with sleeping disorders and could ease sleep disruptions common in old age. The team at the University of Geneva, Switzerland, previously found that rocking helped people fall asleep when they were having an afternoon nap. My question is, why is anybody the least bit surprised by this? Why did someone have to do a study at a university to determine that, you know, rocking sometimes helps you sleep? Hey, maybe they'll take up this idea. Sometimes when you're sitting and you're able to rock, it feels kind of good. Anyway, I am a big fan of hammocks and suggest that if you've never really slept in one or laid around in one, you ought to give it a try. And you know, come to think, we may be able to top this article about someone experiencing disfigurement in a slight bump on a ski, ski slope. There's an actor, or alleged actor, out there called Jussie Smollett, who I know nothing about and don't intend to learn anything more about, who has gotten himself into a bit of hot water by apparently filing a false police claim. Evidently, last month, he claimed that two Trump supporters assaulted him on a Chicago street. Critics of the administration allege that this attack proved that, well, America was racist and homophobic, given that the actor was black and gay. Now, the premise that there's, there's some rampant racism and homophobia in Trump's America is not something we would dispute. But to actors everywhere, we suggest that you not try to draw your attention to yourself in a similar fashion. In this story, I noted that Chicago police sources note that Smollett knew both 
alleged assailants, a pair of Nigerian-American brothers, and he paid them to stage a phony assault to gin up sympathy for him. Here's my question. Who bought into the idea that a pair of Nigerian-Americans were Trump supporters? There probably are some. But what are the odds? Writing about this episode in the Daily Beast, Matt Lewis said that not so long ago, fakers posed as heroes and winners. Now, frauds claim victim status, the most coveted status of all. Victims instantly get both sympathy and moral authority. So why bother pretending to be a hero or a champion? What this says about our society is unclear, but it can't be good. And in other news about racism that apparently was uh, pulled out of a time capsule, we have the fact that John Wayne's comments made in 1971 apparently uh, were, were floating around on the Internet being remarked upon. Now, this correspondent, by virtue of his medical training, did live for almost four years in Orange County, California. And I have to say, I was always embarrassed by the fact that they decided to name the airport after actor John Wayne. Let me quote from a piece from the Bay Area News Group. In a week when the U.S. culture wars focused on Jussie Smollett's reportedly false claim of being the victim of a hate crime and on Donald Trump calling immigration at the U.S.-Mexican border a national emergency, people were on Twitter fiercely debating John Wayne's infamous racially charged 1971 Playboy interview during which he observed, I believe in white supremacy until the blacks are educated to a point of responsibility. Even though John Wayne died almost 40 years ago, he was the number one trending topic on Twitter last week. I'm tempted to ask why anybody, you know, gives a damn about John Wayne's intemperate remarks. So I have to have to realize that, that a part of me is really enjoying this. Noted Martha Ross in her article about this. For some, Wayne's comments are disturbingly relevant to discussions still taking place. Journalist and author Glenn Greenwald joined in the Twitter debate about the interview in his 2008 book, Great American Hypocrites, Toppling the Big Myths of Republican Politics. Greenwald said Wayne has long served as a template for right-wing notions of American courage and conservative manliness. That's largely because Wayne played World War II heroes and stalwart figures of the American West in more than 200 Hollywood films. Greenwald, the co-founder of The Intercept, tweeted, I devoted a book chapter to John Wayne, a conservative icon and one of the 20th century's most deceitful and pitiful man, a supporter of Joe McCarthy, war cheerleader, and moralizer who casually impugned patriotism and called people perverts while draft-dodging and having serial drunken affairs. Ouch! Glenn, don't hold back! Producer Joe Carnahan excoriated Wayne for being a war hawk, especially during the Vietnam War, even though he dodged service during World War II. Carnahan mentioned some of Wayne's famous contemporaries who signed up to serve, including in combat units, like Jimmy Stewart. Anyway, in 20 years of doing this show, that must be the first time we've stumbled into John Wayne, Mr. McMillan. It does provoke memories of decades before that, when as a college student at UC Davis, Kirk Bone, a swimmer that in the same dorm as me, once drunkenly did a John Wayne impression that was so horrible, he was instantly and thereafter christened Duke. So anyway, Duke Bone, if by chance you're out there listening, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We will put your impression of John Wayne on the air. I don't know, and as of this writing, it appears that the Virginia governor is going to withstand the terrible scandal of him having once 
back in 1984, appeared in a photograph in blackface. Writing in the New York Times, Brett Stevens said, Northam's determination to keep his job is probably for the best. Resigning would only reinforce a flawed dynamic whereby people are judged only by their most shameful moments. Should Jesse Jackson's life be boiled down to the single use of the anti-Semitic slur, Town? How about Joe Biden, who once referred to Barack Obama as, quote, the first mainstream African-American who's articulate and bright and clean? <laughs> you have to reflect on the fact that he said that he still became Obama's vice president. If Obama was okay with it, shouldn't we be? Stevens noted that in the 35 years since North's alleged antics, he's lived an upstanding life without a hint of racial bias. If that doesn't count, then America is headed to a dark place. No pun intended. We've often tried to point out that in this program, we have our limitations. There's some topics we feel qualified to talk about, and some that we're not. So generally, we don't. Some years back, I pointed out that you'll probably never hear us talk on this program about fashion. And yet, today we're going to take just a brief moment to do that. As we note, the passing of Karl Lagerfeld, designer of luxury fashions. His New York Times obituary referred to him as the most prolific designer of the 20th and 21st centuries, and a man whose career formed the prototype of the modern luxury fashion industry. He died last week in Paris. The Times noted that in his 80s, when most of his peers were retiring to their yachts or country estates, he was designing an average of 14 new collections a year. They also noted that his greatest calling was orchestrating his own myth. CNN pointed out that the world is now tasked with reconciling the many facets of the man who helmed Chanel for more than three decades, who was by most accounts one of the industry's most complex and compelling figures. Now, I have to confess, until this man died, I didn't even know he was alive. Which is precisely why Radio Parallax shouldn't talk about fashion issues. Noted CNN, Lagerfeld's influence extended far beyond the reaches of fashion's inner sanctum. As creative director not only of the storied French luxury house, but also of Fendi and several eponymous collections, he cultivated an outsized persona in popular culture. Which meant he had a global audience for such comments as... No one wants to see a curvy woman on the catwalk. And in reference to Adele, she's a little too fat. He later offered a quasi-apology to Adele. Noted CNN, historically fashion's most powerful figures have hardly been known to celebrate those outside the thin, white, able-bodied norm. But Lagerfeld stood out in his willingness to deride women's bodies loudly and without apology. Heidi Klum, he said, was simply too heavy to be a runway model. The problem in the French healthcare system were caused by all the diseases caught by people who were too fat. In a 2009 interview with the German magazine Focus, he mocked the readers of the popular publication Bridget, a German woman's magazine, for wanting to see, quote, real women, unquote, in his pages. Saying, quote, you've got fat mothers with their bags of chips sitting in front of the television saying that thin models are ugly, he said. They noted that for a designer whose wit was legendary, saying at one point, I'm very much down to earth, just not this earth. Some evidently argue that his narrow ideals of beauty stem from personal insecurities. Lagerfeld himself once lost 92 pounds in over a year. 
a saga chronicled in the 2002 book The Carl Lagerfeld Diet, which he co-wrote with his doctor. He did so, he said, in order to fit into the slim-cut suits that the designer Heidi Silman made for Dior Home. I hope I'm pronouncing those right. Forget today's vogue for wellness, said CNN. In Lagerfeld's view, fashion is the healthiest motivation for losing weight. That's not really discussing fashion, but it's the best we can do, and we're just going to leave it at that. Our first, last, and probably only discussion of the topic. Let's do something we're more familiar with. Our usual feature, the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for orangutan libido, with the news that Swiss zoo officials were shocked when a DNA test on a baby orang revealed that the only male in her mother's enclosure is not her father. At first, Basil Zoo keepers assumed Padma's father was Budi, who shares the enclosure with the female Maja. But the test soon revealed that her father was Vendel, who is housed in an adjacent pen separated from Maja's by a fence. Officials concluded that the two managed to mate through the fence. Well, there you have it. Love conquers all, doesn't it? It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for bank robbers. After officials called to investigate a sinkhole in Florida, stumbled upon a 150-foot-long tunnel being dug in the direction of a Chase bank. Authorities found the three-foot-wide shaft in Pembroke Pines after a sinkhole appeared above it on a public roadway. FBI Special Agent Michael Leverock said that since the diggers were headed toward the bank, it was being classified as an attempted bank robbery. Leverock said, I don't think they were doing that for any other reason. The FBI on the case. We had a bank robber on this show many years ago, but, you know, I don't think it's in our archives, so I don't want to send you there. And and uh, that's something we ought to dig up and refurbish, Mr. McMillan. It was fascinating. That was a fun one. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for the First Amendment, with the news that an editor of a small-town Alabama newspaper had called for the Ku Klux Klan to ride again and clean out D.C. of Democrats. Goodlow Sutton, age 79, publisher and editor of The Democrat Reporter in Linden, Alabama, voiced his controversial opinion in an editorial. <laughs> when asked to clarify it, said he hoped the Klan would get the hemp ropes out, loop them over the tall limbs, and hang all of them. He has subsequently been relieved of his post. We hope he's not turned up in Ace Hardware trying to buy hemp rope. Got a couple statistical items we should throw out there. According to Topic.com, problem gamblers make up about 10 to 15% of lottery participants, but are responsible for 80% of the $73 billion in sales of state lotteries. The higher the poverty rate in an area, the higher the sales of lottery. Which does remind me of the W.C. Fields addendum to the old adage that a fool and his money are soon parted. Said Fields, I believe it was Fields, 
A fool and his money were lucky to have gotten together in the first place. And, according to the New York Times, at least 30 to 40 percent of Catholic priests in the United States are gay. That's according to multiple estimates by researchers and dozens of interviews with priests. Reportedly, some are sexually active and some are not, but priests said the widespread homosexuality within their ranks is an open, though rarely discussed, secret. All right, in the six minutes or so we have left in this segment, I want to talk about uh, (laughs) tech monopolies. Now, that Timu event at the Commonwealth Club was advertised as inside tech monopolies. But in fact, it was more his uh, assault on, you know, bigness and how antitrust needs to be dusted off and used more often. Anyway, we're, we're very critical on this program of where tech is leading us and how tech companies are prying into our lives. But I do want to note there is one aspect of AI that, well, we're, we're not scared by. According to New Scientist, last week, OpenAI Research Group announced that it created an artificial intelligence capable of generating hundreds of words of convincing text on almost any topic. But the group said it wouldn't be releasing the AI because of its potential to be used as a fake news generator. Now, I'm not sure why this is garnering headlines. Why do you need artificial intelligence to generate fake news when you have so many humans out there that will do it by virtue of their natural stupidity. Have people in the tech industry gotten so dismissive of actual humans <laughs> that they think their AI is the only thing we have to really worry about? That, you know, I mean, this is, this is really dangerous stuff. They could generate fake news. Hello? <laughs> the Trump administration is doing it 24-7. And another item we're not worried about, but we're also not happy about, is this. Apparently, the selling of Girl Scout cookies has now gone online. In a predictably upbeat puff piece in the East Bay Times, well, reporter Karen D'Souza informed us that, like everything else these days, Girl Scouts can now peddle their wares online with the organization's digital cookie platform. There... They, or their parents, can set up a site and reach out to friends and family through email and social media. That's what the world needs. Girl Scout cookies via social media. Thankfully, a few people have raised some reasonable objections. The article says that while many Scouts and their parents are thrilled to say goodbye to shoe leather sales, others argue there's nothing like the old-fashioned method to teach girls valuable lessons about marketing, sales, and winning over customers. Jane Rabba Nicola, the mother and mother of two from Dublin, said there's value in selling Girl Scout cookies face-to-face. It promotes a sense of community, not to mention getting them to practice the dying art of talking to people. I don't know about you, Ms. Rim, but I'm not going to buy my samosas and thin mints through social media. Well, I'll stop doing it as of now. Oh, boy. Yeah, there's something to be said about, you know, actually talking human to human. Here's another piece from New Scientist that sort of cracked me up. Once upon a time, researchers dreamed of building a robot storyteller. It would regale young children to help them learn well. The tales wouldn't be too hard or easy, but just right. This dream has come true. The robot is called Tega. It is cute fluffy, and appears to boost language skills in young children. You know, here's another idea. How about children learning language skills from their parents and grandparents? 
I know they may be busy online buying Girl Scout cookies, but what about sitting down with the kids and telling them some stories? And how about this item from a week or two ago? Google has now admitted that Nest Guard, the keypad and motion sensor device that's part of the Nest Secure System, has a built-in microphone whose existence the company failed to disclose in any of the product's literature. The mic got outed because Google announced earlier this month that its home security system could also double as a Google Assistant smart speaker, with the company suggesting users could ask if they needed an umbrella on their way out. A Google spokesperson told Business Insider the company made a mistake in not previously disclosing that NestGuard has a microphone and that the mic is only turned on when the user specifically enable the option. Saying, quote, The on-device microphone was never intended to be a secret and should have been listed in tech specs. That was an error on our part. Google's admission comes as it and other tech companies struggle with myriad privacy-related controversies and calls to be more transparent. Other memorable recent privacy lapses, including smart speakers, include Amazon's Echo sending a recording of a couple's conversation to someone on their contact list last year, and when some of Google's home mini-speakers were found to, in fact, be recording everything. It's time for a break, so let's take one. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.